Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Under a glorious blue sky that matched the Seahawks' throwback uniforms yesterday, a big win over a tough Cleveland Browns team. I will react and give you my five takeaways as the Seahawks move to five and two. Coming up next on Seahawks Forever. Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Vienz. Hit that like button, subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's the best way to follow along, get notifications of new episodes. If you prefer the audio versions, uh, you can do that as well. Just anywhere you listen to podcasts, be sure to subscribe so that you know anytime I post a new episode. And if you listen on Spotify and you want to get rid of those ads, you can subscribe for 99 cents a month. That link is in the description. Also, just one last little plug. If you really like what I do and you want to buy me a coffee or a beer, you can do that. Wait, which way am I pointing here? On video? That way? <laughs> Link in the description. Uh, how's your day been going, Seahawk fans? Are you having a good time? Anything happening? I don't know. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way, officially. Uh, if you haven't already heard, big trade today for the Seahawks. Um, I'll touch on that when we get into the body of my reaction today, my five takeaways in the Seahawks win over the Browns. Um, but I already did a full reaction show on the acquisition of Leonard Williams, big trade, picking up the defensive end from the New York Giants today. So uh, I'll link a card right up here. And also I will put that link in the description as well if you want to jump into that and get my uh, almost immediate reaction to that trade. Uh, but the purpose of this show is let's talk about that Browns game, shall we? As the Seahawks beat the Browns 24 to 20 yesterday in an absolutely beautiful day at Lumen Field. You, you know, you just don't. I mean, last Sunday against Cardinals was not bad, overcast. Anytime at the end of October that you can go to a game and not have to bundle up and, and uh, fight against the rain or bitter cold or snow or just really gross conditions um, is a bonus. And then yesterday was just, you can't ride a better. Uh, day uh, it's just absolutely gorgeous uh, fun day to be at the at the game took uh, one of my favorite people in the whole wide world my buddy Steve we had a great time I keep pointing the wrong way for video just trying to have some fun with this with some graphics I always forget it's backwards <laughs> um, had a great time shout out to my buddy um, and, and and I will say this you guys know me well enough to know, especially those of you who follow me on Twitter, that I can be a little reactive and emotional during games, as most of us can. I like to think of myself, though, as uh, balanced, objective, thoughtful. It's kind of the, the intended basis of my approach to this show. I try to balance my fandom 
with my um, analysis and thoughtfulness and my experience as a journalist and a broadcaster in analyzing what I see happening on the field. But sometimes that's easier said than done. And uh, and Steve sat there the whole game yesterday even when things weren't going great. And I, I was pretty under control and just kept saying, hey, it's going to be okay. We're going to win. It's going to be okay. We're going to win. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Uh, and he was right. It took till the last drive of the game, but it was fun. Uh, I think I saw today that was Geno Smith's fourth game-winning drive. He's engineered in overtime or regulation since he took over, started for the Seahawks. Uh, not too shabby. As I always do, I will give you my five takeaways. But first, before we get into that, I just want to touch on it again. Um, because I mentioned it on the show last week, and I even tagged it, it's on my Twitter profile, that I didn't think the Seahawks would make a big trade. I didn't think they would make take a big swing per se. I thought the Frank Clark thing made sense. Um, and I and, and I'd mentioned specifically last week when I brought it up that just the way that they're going about building their roster now, they've made some mistakes with big trades and they value those draft picks so much that um I didn't see it happening. But as a fan, man, I'm excited that they did because I think they got the right player, the right fit at the right time. And I can't wait to see how Leonard Williams fits into this group. And we're going to talk about the defense in a minute, but I'm going to start off. My first of five takeaways today is the offense adapted. You know, two weeks ago, I was really critical of the offensive approach against the Bengals. Many of us were that they put too much trust in that offensive line. In particular, Jake Curran and his ability to operate on an Island at, at right tackle. After the Seahawks had used a ton of 12 and 13 personnel with multiple tight ends to help out after the injury to Abe Lucas and Charles Cross. But with Cross being back against Cincinnati, I just felt like they they placed way too much faith in that offensive line. It really was the story of the game, how the, the Bengals took over that game up front on defense as the game wore on. And the pressure they were able to generate against Geno at the end of the game was the difference in the game. And then last week against the Cardinals, it was better. And they went back to a lot of heavy 12 and 13 personnel. But they also made a move and, and shifted Stone Forsyth to the right tackle position. And then this week, it was Forsyth and the old veteran, 41-year-old Jason Peters. And they, they essentially split snaps. They would go, they kind of rotated series. And it was Peters that was in there on the last drive of the game. Incidentally, though, they went back to more 11 personnel with just one tight end and three wide receivers. 70% of their offensive play calls yesterday came out of 11 personnel. So going up against a Cleveland Browns defense coming into the game was ranked number one in the league in just about every category and certainly featured Miles Garrett, one of the best, if not the best, defensive players in the NFL. Just a monster pass rusher, real headache for offenses. They went back to more three wide receiver sets, less multiple tight end sets and left stone Forsyth and the rookie Anthony Bradford starting again at right guard in place of Phil Haynes out there on an Island more often. And it was better. It, it's funny though, because I'll say this to the naked eye. It looked like Gino wasn't pressured that much. He trusted his offensive line again. He hung in there in the pocket a couple times. He had to escape. Garrett got to him late with about six minutes left in the game. It was really the only time you heard Garrett's name being called. 
Um, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit on my next takeaway, talking about the offensive line. But then some of the PFF grades and pressure grades today, it looked like Gino was facing pressure on about half of uh, design passes. Um, but yet, the offense was varied. It was mixed. It, it was a little bit more pass heavy than I would have expected, especially, you know, last week, one of my criticisms was too many first down runs. They, they ran on two thirds of their first downs last week. And, and on half of those, they followed it up with a second down run, a little too conservative this week, 37 passes to 15 designed runs. And so the, the plan on how to attack that Browns defense was solid. And uh, they talked a lot, Pete did today on his show about uh, there was an emphasis on getting the ball out quicker for Geno. Um, and you could see it. You could see the ball come out quicker. I haven't seen the actual numbers on release time, um, but but I'd be interested to see, and I would expect that those would be a lot quicker than they were the week before and certainly in Cincinnati. Spread the ball around. Uh, it was a really nice tandem of Kenneth Walker and Zach Charbonnet. Going to touch on that a little bit more in a minute. But uh, Tyler Lockett had about as quiet an eight-catch, 81-yard, one-touchdown day as you can have. But just doing his thing, man. He looks like he can play till he's 35, 36 years old. Moving the chains, great on third down. Always finding those open spots in the zone. Uh, JSN with three catches and the winning touchdown, of course. DK with five catches, 57 yards. Uh, Noah Fant, a couple of big catches in this one, including one on the last drive that got him down close. So uh, that's my first takeaway. My second takeaway, related. The offensive line rocked yesterday. Again, considering Phil Haynes out again, still uh, no Abe Lucas. Stone Forsyth only starting his third career game at right tackle. He's mostly been a left tackle through his college career and the pros. Uh, graded out extremely high on PFF. I think he was our highest graded offensive player. And in particular, graded out over 90 points or over 90% as a run blocker. Now remember, coming out of college, the, the book on Stone Forsyth was outstanding athlete for his size, long uh, basketball background, and a guy that uh, multiple scouting reports were can start today as a rookie as a pass blocker. Has a lot of room to grow as a run blocker. Of course, Florida played that air raid kind of spread system where they, they hardly ever ran the ball. So to see him come out and do so well blocking in the run game yesterday, grading out so well, and producing results, keep this in mind. Coming into this game, the Browns, as I mentioned earlier, number one in the league in defense in almost every measurable category. They were only allowing, coming into this game, 163 passing yards per game. And Geno uh, went for 254. They were only allowing 96 yards rushing. Seahawks got 114 on only 15 designed runs. And one of those was the one to Jake Bobo for the touchdown early on in the little end around. So Seahawks were able to, to, to be better against the Browns than most other offenses on average against them this year. And to do it with the right side of the offensive line, uh, you're playing backups essentially, speaks volumes about the future of Anthony Bradford and his improvement, his growth curve over the first three starts that he's had. Uh, Seahawks offensive line only allowed the one sack to Garrett with six minutes left on 38 dropbacks. 
And the running backs averaged 6.7 yards per carry between Charbonnet and Walker. That is outstanding. And they scored the two touchdowns early, had the 14-0 lead, thought maybe we were going to blow them out, right? But uh, that's just not the way this Seahawks team likes to play it. Not the way that they like to play it. And then they got the touchdown late. So sandwich in between second and third quarter, there were, again, some struggles on third down that we'll talk about in a minute. My third takeaway, and I touched on it earlier, is Zach Charbonnet closing the gap with Kenneth Walker. Now, Charbonnet had to exit the Cincinnati game, and they, they pulled back on his snaps because of a ham, hamstring injury. He didn't play last week against Arizona. Um, he averages 10.6 yards per carry yesterday to 8.3 for Ken Walker. On the season, 28 carries, 162 yards. That's 5.8 yards per carry. Uh, he's added eight catches, 47 yards. Walker now up to 516 yards on the season, 4.4 yards per carry. He's got the six touchdowns, and he's caught seven, 27 balls for 165 yards. It's not a big deal, and I don't think it's a – we're not looking at a running back controversy, but I will say this. It's why I bring it up. Many of you, before the season, after the draft, said that you like Zach Charbonnet so much, a little bit bigger back, a little more physical, a little more north-south runner, and we saw that on a couple of runs yesterday. That um, that at some point during the season, you could see him taking over as RB1, basically, and Ken Walker maybe built to being more of a complementary piece, a little shiftier, a little bit more sideline to sideline, east-west runner, cutback runner. I think stylistically that makes sense. And I only ask the question because, you know, the first couple of games we didn't see much out of Zach Charbonnet, but he really is starting to contribute now when he's on the field on a weekly basis. Still need to see some more consistency from that run game as a whole as far as uh, Shane Waldron and how he calls it. You know, Walker had most of his yards on that big run early and then didn't have much after that. Charbonnet kind of came on late. Um, it's a good problem to have. I don't think it is a problem. I think Ken Walker remains the starter, but I don't know that he has a lock on that. For good. And then uh, we should see Kenny McIntosh potentially being act active for the first time next week as well. He's got one week of practice under his belt after coming off IR. They were really high on him, especially as a guy that could help out on third downs uh, because he's the best pass blocker of the three. So it'll be interesting to see how they work him into the mix as well. Uh, my number two takeaway is as good as the defense has been, as consistent as they've been, they still have room to grow. I don't think they're there yet. Remember, this is the fifth youngest roster in the NFL, and a lot of that is on defense. And, and, and you take away Bobby Wagner, Jamal Adams, Quandre Diggs, there's a lot of youth there in key spots. Guys are locked up for a long time, and they're just learning to play together. This is only the third game now. Jamal Adams, Devin Witherspoon, Reek Woolen have all gotten to play together. Feel like they're still kind of feeling each other out. Um, but the results for as young as they are and as new as this squad is are promising, obviously, right? They're just, they're limiting explosive plays. They had a couple, they had the one drive, the, the first Browns touchdown drive where it was basically three screen plays in a row. Um, great play calling by the Browns, great execution. The Seahawks adapted to it. There was the big play later, kind of the, the, the play to David and Joku where, 
he's a little late release screen too. And he kind of got caught up in traffic and it was hard to see him and he kind of squirted out. Um, but the, the, you just don't, don't you have a lot of confidence now when you watch this defense? You just don't feel like they're going to give up the big play. They're going to keep it in front of them. And I'll say this. I know, I know a lot of people are going crazy and I saw a lot of it on Twitter that, you know, should have never given up that many points to a Browns team uh, with PJ Walker. A practice squad quarterback. Saw a lot of that last night on Twitter. Practice squad quarterback. Still can't believe. It's, can we never be happy? <laughs> I know I'm guilty of doing that sometimes too, where you want perfection, right? It just doesn't happen. You just don't see teams anymore in the NFL that come out week in, week out and steamroll you. Even the Philadelphia Eagles kind of have looked that way the last couple of weeks, right? I think they might have the, the potential to do that because they have the deepest most complete roster, but two weeks ago they lose to the Jets and Jalen Hurts looks terrible. On any given Sunday has never been more true. And I think that you just have to take that mentality that a win is a win, even if it's ugly, because it's a young team. We will have discussions later this season, certainly in the offseason, about really was this a three-year plan? Are they one more offseason and a couple of players away from taking this thing over the top? But in the meantime, I'll say it again. Any of you have five and two? Did any of you have five and two? And if any of you think you did, did you have five and two based on the back of the defense with the offense having to kind of find their way? We thought maybe it'd be the other way around, didn't it? Didn't we? Uh, but the thing I like about this defense is coming from everywhere, right? The downside, we're still seeing some missed tackles. We're still seeing too many penalties, seven penalties yesterday. A lot of them on the defense. Ticky-tack for sure. Pass interference call on Woolen that I thought was really questionable. The hands to the face late in the game was an absolutely terrible call. Almost looked like somebody opined that uh, looked like maybe the, the officials had been tipped off to that and they were looking for it and they called it right away early in the route. He was just trying to get a, he was trying to get a bump stuck his arm out. Maybe it grazed the bottom of his face mask. Thought that was really questionable, but, but, but I think they're getting those calls because they're, they have a little bit of a reputation for being grabby. So the, the penalties still need to be cleaned up for sure. But this group is learning to play together and they're led really by those linebackers, Bobby, another incredible game as he continues to turn back the clock, 13 tackles a tackle for loss, a pass defense. Jordan Brooks, again, 10 more tackles, another sack. He's really becoming a weapon. Didn't see this side of him first two years of his career. Really becoming an effective blitzer. Had a sack and two more quarterback hits. And the sack was a strip sack. Ended up being a turnover. Boy, Amafe, once again, his fifth game in a row with the sack. That hasn't been done very often early in a player's career. Uh, he had eight tackles, the sack, four quarterback hits, and a tackle for loss. And Daryl Taylor, in his first time having a start because Uchenna Nwosu on the injured list, he had a sack, a tackle for loss, a quarterback hit, didn't seem to be the liability in the run game. Uh, he turned a screen back inside, did some cool things out there on the edge. Uh, there was going to be a lot of question on that group as to how the outside linebacker rotation would go with Frank Clark coming in. Played more than I thought he would. He was out there on the first drive for just coming off the street on Wednesday. But the rotation was about what I expected. Boye Mafe, 74% of snaps. Daryl Taylor, 60%. Derek Hall got bumped up a little bit, 38% on his snap count. Had a couple tackles. And then Frank Clark at 
It feels like that's about how it's going to be, that Clark's essentially going to be used uh, in certain situations, more as a designated pass rusher. Um, and then my number one takeaway on this one, even though he didn't have the type of game where he's running around making plays the whole game, I said this defense uh, gets plays from everyone. And when the game was on the line, the biggest impact play, the guy who stepped up this time was Jamal Adams. And that play uh, where he deflected the ball off his helmet was made just an absolutely, he's coming on, he's coming on a blitz and he, he's going up against Teller, one of their, one of their most physical best offensive linemen on what is one of the best offensive lines in the league and just takes him on completely sacrifices his body, jumps up in the air and takes him on full force creates that deflection. Julian Love gets it for the interception. Seahawks come out and uh, drive down the field, get the winning touchdown. He had eight tackles in the game, a tackle for loss, that pass defensed. His pat, haven't seen the PFF grades, haven't looked at the analytics today, but his pass defense seems to be better. There were a couple plays there where they were trying to get the ball to David Njoku down the field, and Adams was there in coverage. It just... You can see his impact, and you you can see why the Seahawks wanted to stick with him. And uh, and he he looks as healthy as he's looked since he's been here too. Good to see. Uh, not everything was great, you know. There are certainly things to build on. Um, one of the things I, I think I might do my film breakdown on later this year. Um, and side note, by the way, for those of you who like the film breakdowns, but uh, have noticed that the audio would go to one channel, I found a fix for that. So uh, look forward to that. Uh, even though Metcalf had five catches and some key catches in this game, the chemistry between Geno and Metcalf seems to be off. There were a couple times in the red zone in particular where the Seahawks still really need to get a lot better. Uh, where it looked like Geno was expecting DK to run a certain route and he ran a different one. There was one where he threw it to the, the back pylon of the end zone. Looked like he was expecting him to throw off, to run a fade. Uh, and he kind of cut it off and ran more of a slant and in breaking route. So the ball goes, you know, fires it over DK's head. There were a couple of plays like that. There was another one where he just threw to his feet. You know, he's wide open on a slant, didn't hit him. Um, maybe it's just a bad day at the office, but that the communication stuff is a little concerning. Shouldn't be happening after all this time, right? Um, you know, Gino missed a couple of throws, like I said, but it, it hearing after the game, Carol and Waldron talk about how the emphasis was on being quicker. Uh, it makes sense. You know, maybe in his mind, he's trying to speed up that internal clock. And we've talked about that the last couple of weeks. And it's just, it's an adjustment period. He's trying to get quicker. Sometimes you, you rush before your mechanics can catch up and you, and your, your upper body gets a little ahead of your feet and your feet aren't quite set and you throw the ball higher, low, higher, low. Uh, but overall solid game for Gino, 23 out of 37, 254, two touchdowns. Uh, yeah. He, he throws two picks and he had a third, that um, on replay didn't look as close to being a pick as it did in the stadium, but it almost looked like he had a pick six. Um, uh, but one of the, one of the interceptions, the one who was trying to hit Fant on a blitz, the Browns are sending a lot of pressure. He was trying to get rid of the ball real quick, and it was absolute uh, amazing play by Hurst, a uh, big defensive lineman out of the University of Michigan who dropped back in coverage. Uh, and Gino just wasn't expecting that. Didn't see it. Hurst bats it up in the air and catches it. Um, certainly Gino needs to clean those things up. You know, we need to see at some point in the next few weeks, I'd love to see one of those three touchdowns, zero interception games out of him. Um, but he was solid against, again, I'll keep making this emphasis. One of the 
maybe the best defense in the NFL. Certainly a, a team that came in leading in every category coming into this game. And um, and he was he was pretty consistently effective. And then when the game was on the line, he was really good. I will say this. They went hurry up on that last drive. And Gina was great. I don't know. And this has been something going back years, even to when Russell was here. I don't know why they don't unleash tempo once in a while and go no huddle. But on the game-winning drive, the thing I like the most about him, even given some of the issues that he had in Cincinnati with pressure, uh, he trusted his pocket. He hung in there. And as I said earlier, Jason Peters was in there on the right side on that last drive. Um. And then the JSN winner was a really cool design play, just a little outside screen, DK with the block. You know, there was some question about whether he held, but I, even on the TV copy, I think it was Daryl Johnson on the color, um, where he said, hey, yeah, he got his hands on the outside, but he let go so that, the you know, before the official didn't give him a reason. Once he saw JSN was coming around, he let go of him so he wouldn't get called for a hold. I thought that was a nice move. First four games of the season for Jackson Smith and Jigba. 12 catches, 62 yards. Last three since the bye and since uh, Carroll says that wrist is fully healed, 11 catches, 147 yards, and two touchdowns. Uh, we continue to see his development. And now the Seahawks are in first place. I haven't mentioned that until now. Right? There's a half-game difference between they and the 49ers. That'll be made up this week because the 49ers go on a bye. Coming off three straight losses, the Seahawks now have a half-game lead at 5-2 and two over the 6-3 and three San Francisco 49ers. Or, uh, uh, I'm sorry. 5-3. and three. Um, So tied in the win column and a half-game up in the loss column. Um, when you look around the NFC now, how do you feel about where this team is? And, and ask yourself that in context and for perspective, because so many of you now, uh, I keep hearing it, that, yeah, they won, but, yeah, they won, but they really need to get better at this stuff. And I do it too. I've adjusted it, didn't I? Kind of. I mean, we're always looking for perfection. It's what coaches do too. They No matter how well they play one week to the next, they're going into the film room and they're looking at, okay, but now how can we be better? How could we have made this a three-score win, right? We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. But how can you not be pleased with where this team is right now at 5-2? and two? In first place in the NFC West. In second place right now, they would be the second seed in the NFC. Tied with uh, Dallas and Detroit, who they obviously have the tiebreaker over. They play Dallas in a month in their throwbacks again. That'll be fun. They came out of this game with no significant injuries. They're getting healthier. Another week this week of uh, Austin Fialu, um returning to practice. Kenny McIntosh getting closer. And now you add Leonard Williams to the mix. A 28-year-old defensive end who can reduce inside as well. 
exactly the kind of defensive lineman that Pete Carroll talked about in the offseason they wanted to acquire. They wanted to get more dynamic and longer, like the 49ers. He, he name-dropped Eric Armstead, Nick Bosa, of course. Leonard Williams is that dude. He's 6'4 plus. He's, he's 305 pounds. He's 35 plus inch arms. 36 and a half sacks in his career, 39 and a half sacks in his career. Had the big year in 2020 with 11 and a half. Uh, top 20 among interior defensive linemen this year in pass rush win rate and pressure percentage, even though he only has a sack and a half to show for it. The pressure's been there. He's playing for a contract now. He's in the expiring year of his deal. Um, again, for my full breakdown on this move, uh, go to the description, click the link to that one, and watch that one. But you add him to this, this mix, and it just it's one of those moves that also sends a message to your team and to your locker room. Look around us, you guys. We can win this thing. We can control our own destiny because we play. We still have all these teams in front of us. We still play them. Uh, just an outstanding move today um, to add to uh, a roster that's already young and ascending and exciting, right? Uh, New York Times metric has the Seahawks at 82% to make the playoffs right now, 36% to win the division. Uh, and that percentage went up by 11% with their win over the Browns. So it was an important win, even though it was intra-conference, inter-conference. And they have another one of those next week, playing the Ravens, who are 6-2, and two, coming off a 31-24 win over Arizona. And they are almost just as good defensively as the Browns. So another test for that Seahawks offense. They are number two in yards per game and number one in the NFL in points per game. They are only allowing 15 points per game. We'll talk a little bit more extensively later in the week about the Ravens specifically as we break down that game and get you ready uh, for that one. Um, but that is for another day. Let's enjoy this win. Let's enjoy the Seahawks making a move. Do, do they have another move in them? It's still 24 hours or so until the trade deadline. John Schneider got something else up his, up his sleeve. Would D. Eskridge be on the move or a Mike Jackson to a team that's quarterback needy? Maybe just the type of deal that brings a a draft pick back in return? Or do you go out? The Carl Lawson rumors probably don't make sense now because Leonard Williams is your guy there. Do you add maybe another veteran offensive lineman, someone that can play guard if you don't think Phil Haynes will be back? Um, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? Thanks for watching and listening. I am Dan. Follow me at Seahawks Forever on Twitter. Subscribe to the show. And we'll talk to you soon, all right? Until next time, as always, forever and always, go Hawks.